When it comes to near misses, the one that stands out as the closest, which was measured after the fact, was six inches. Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. Today, Joe Clark will share a couple of his near-miss stories and how they could have been prevented, as well as telling us a few interesting times he had while flying for the Navy. Little tiny grass airstrip southeast of Tampa. I belong to a group of antique airplane aficionados. Every month we would get together, go to some, some airfield, and party all day. Some would stay overnight. And in my case, this particular day, since I grew up in Tampa, I was going to go to the north side of Tampa where my buddy worked at the post office, and he was working that night. And he was going to get off about midnight, and that's why I was transiting so late at night. And then I got delayed a little bit more because of this. A guy taxied his airplane across in front of mine without any lights on. He was moving his airplane from one side of the airport over towards the hangars. And in the meantime, I had taken off or I was getting ready to take off. And when I started the takeoff roll, as I got my tail up in the air, there he was right there in the middle of the runway. And where the Cessna's wing strut joins the bottom of the wing, his propeller arc was out about maybe a foot from there. And my wing went right over that prop arc. And later on, a couple of days later, we took uh, an airplane of the same type and put the prop vertical and then pushed my airplane on top and measured the distance between the bottom of my wing and the top of that propeller arc. And it turned out to be about six inches. When it happened, I, um, it scared me to death, just to tell you the honest truth. And I was just barely at flying speed. And this is one thing I love about old airplanes. I reached down and snatched on 20 degrees of flaps immediately and just hauled the airplane into the air. And then I, I banked and looked over my shoulder, and sure enough, there he was sitting in the middle of the runway with no lights on whatsoever. And as I was looking at him, all the lights suddenly illuminated. I think he discovered the importance of that regulation about having nav lights on anytime you're moving an airplane in the dark. Uh, and so I circled overhead for a while, um, trying to get myself back together for the landing. And I came down and landed, uh, went looking for him, and I didn't have to look very far because he was standing there with a couple of buddies of mine who had witnessed the whole thing. The two guys that I've known since the 70s, one guy's named Randy and the other one was Jim, they met me at the airplane and told me I couldn't beat the guy up. And I said, no, I'm not going to beat him up, but I do need to talk to him. They told me that I had gone out with him at the same time. He was about five or seven airplanes down from mine. We both went out. We both climbed in the airplanes together. We both yelled clear at the exact same moment and then started engines exactly at the same moment so that neither one of us knew the presence of the other. He wasn't looking, evidently, and I pulled out of the parking spot after doing my run-up right there because there was nothing behind me, went to the end of the runway, started the takeoff roll, had all my lights on, declared what I was going to do over the radio, and then there he was right in front of me. 
right in the takeoff roll where I had just reached bare flying speed, and and that was the only thing that was good. I was able to jerk the airplane off the ground, but not until I'd passed. I mean, I was completely past him uh, before I got into the air, because I mean, he, it was it was so fast, it was unbelievable. And it was it was kind of funny because I asked him about the regulations. He knew the regulation, but he was operating his aircraft outside of the regulations. And he really thought I was going to turn him in. He was really sweating bullets over that. And I looked at him and I said, um, have you learned your lesson? He said, yeah. And I said, okay, then it's over. Just don't ever do that again. You know, and there's the, the, the learning value. And that's what's so important about all these near misses. And trust me when I say, there's a lot of them that happen every month. Sometimes you hear about them, sometimes you don't. Sometimes they actually end in collisions. Sometimes it's just high anxiety. But there's one thing that is common to most of them. They always happen in the terminal area. It's always near an airport. You know, people are going for the same little patch of real estate to land. And that's when, you know, you've got to follow the rules and you've got to be very careful about it. You know, and that was that was only one near miss out of about probably 18 or so in 40 years of flying. Some other near misses I've had, I was in the pattern at Lakeland. In a Cessna 182, what I was doing in the pattern was I had a student and we were doing touch and goes and we were on the downwind and a 182 came from our left and high and joined the downwind just in front of us, missing us by about 40 feet. And again, improper entry, disregard for rules and standard operating procedures. It's the kind of stuff that gets you in trouble all the time. And that was a, that too was an interesting one. You know, the pilot and I had a, a really good discussion about it, but things happened. I was giving a flight check out of here with uh, an instrument student on a perfectly good day for giving instrument check rides. And we took off. He contacted departure and departure told him to uh, turn right to 120, climb and maintain three, hold south east on the 304 course two at New Smyrna and expect further clearance at 1420. And he read back the clearance. Um, you know, we, we're in the clouds now. So he's flying the airplane. He's taking notes. He's doing a pretty good job. And about uh, eight minutes later, nine minutes later, another aircraft popped up and the controller gave him the exact same clearance. And I waited because, you know, being the check airman, I couldn't interfere with anything. But I only waited as long as I possibly could. You know, the guy was flying a pretty good airplane. He went outbound on a teardrop entry at New Smyrna. But when he started turning back in, he still had not recognized the danger of the situation. And that's when I had to get involved and called up approach and said, hey, we're established at 3,000 feet in the hold. And the controller couldn't get that other aircraft up to 4,000 feet fast enough. And he realized that he had made a mistake. And, and that's why, you know, new pilots, young pilots, inexperienced pilots, they have not yet developed that sense of looking out for themselves. You know, they trust controllers way too much. They really do. And this is one of the things that I want student pilots to know. You really can't trust ATC, and you really can't trust TCAS or any other technologies. You know, a lot of people are out flying and watching the screens in their aircraft 
when they should be looking for traffic. And and the reason I say you can't trust ATC, you know, ATC, they're great. You know, some of my best friends are controllers. However, they are also humans. They, they make mistakes. It's tragic, you know, because after, after they make a mistake, they're still going to go home that night, whereas flight crew and passengers may not. And that's why young pilots need to really get that idea of looking out for themselves in their own minds so that they can stay safe. We've talked about the importance of decision-making before on the logbook, and I think it's definitely worth repeating through stories like this, especially for inexperienced learning pilots like myself. Before the events of the previous stories, Joe flew as a pilot in the Navy. He said that he had a lot of great experiences flying for the military, and here are a couple he shared with me. I mean, the, ma- the amazing thing about military is the precision with which they fly. And, and a lot of people don't understand that, too. I mean, putting bombs on target, and when I say bombs on target, they'll, they'll give you a target time of, like, say, 7, 51, and 23 seconds. And you got to hit that time plus or minus 7 seconds. And you would think that you couldn't possibly do that, but actually, all the planning back to bomb release is, and navigation to the to the IP is, is right there. And it's amazing. It really is. And the reason it has to be so precise is because you might be dropping one weapon, and when it goes off, it, it throws stuff into the air, and there's actually a timed fall. And then another element will come in and hit the same target shortly after you. So if you're late or early, if you're early, you might fly through somebody else's frag pattern. And if you're late, you might create a frag pattern for some other flight. So that's one of the things that I really enjoyed was the precision of the business. Uh, That and landing on boats and fighting in the sky. Yeah, dogfighting was the best. Every tactical aviator has to dogfight. You have to learn, you know, even though I was an attack pilot, if you get jumped on the way into the target, that's a bad thing because you're going to have to get rid of your load in order to fight, you know. But if you're coming off target uh, and you get jumped, yeah, you get into to the actual uh, rolling and pulling. And hopefully it won't go very long, you know, because what you're doing is trying to get back. Uh, I was real lucky. The period of time that I was in, we were not involved in any hot spots. The closest I came was Granada. I was assigned a BC-10 down in Guantanamo, and I got there right as that was happening. Even though I didn't participate, I actually qualified for being in theater at the time. And that was the closest, you know. And then, of course, you know, sitting around guarding Guantanamo, that was that was an interesting time. I was in from 1981 to 1990. Like I say, it was the perfect peacetime, you know. And, and then I get out, and then we go into the first Gulf War. I was completely happy with with my career, but it's like, you know, if you're a football player and you're dressing out for all the practice games, kind of like to get into the real game. But at the same time, like I say, it's okay. One of the great challenges and one of the, the great rewards of being a military aviator was being able to get gas while flying. You know, you spend a whole career with people telling you not to get close to another airplane and to watch out for them and don't collide with them. And all of a sudden, somebody walks into the ready room one day and says, you're going to go hit this airplane. And you go, huh? What we did was we took a buddy store, what's called a buddy store. Uh, We hung three other external fuel cells on the airframe 
topped it off, and that gave it uh, about 17,000 pounds of gas in total. And you'd be able to pass much of that on to the other aircraft. And so similar airplanes. Uh, and, of course, we did, take air, we did take fuel from other aircraft, the KS-3, the KC-135, which I, I didn't like that at all because the Navy airplanes had a, had a non-rigid, fairly large basket, whereas the adapter unit for the KC-135 was a smaller fixed basket or a guide to get into the probe. A real pain in the butt. But the Navy airplanes, that, that was a lot of fun. You know, you basically just stabilized behind it, then tap the little throttle to drive forward, and then go into the basket. And the really cool thing is watching your gas go up while you're flying. A lot of what we did was, and that's one of the things I liked about about the airplanes, the A7, when I transitioned to it, the A7 only had one seat. So you went through simulator training, you flew the sim a lot, and then you went through emergency procedures, and then you signed a yellow sheet for the airplane and took off. Went out and flew around by yourself for a while, came back and did some landings, and and then gave it back to the maintenance people. And that was that was great. I, you know, I'm I'm a big proponent of single seat airplanes, just for that very reason. So yeah, everything that we did, we did alone for the first time in the A7. The other airplanes, the T2 and the A4, T28, there were two seats. So yeah, you had a you had a flight instructor, but the A7, first time out, all by yourself. So if you went out and came back and gave them back the airplane and it wasn't hurt, you were successful. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of good times. Uh, scary times, but good times. Um, things happen. One thing I liked about flying off the boat was that we really flew by one rule, which was don't get hurt. That was a, that was a blast. You know, flying inside the United States, you had to adhere to all the FARs, you know, like speed limits below 10 and all that sort of stuff. But out at the ship, it was all do whatever it was you wanted, as long as you didn't break the airplane uh, or hurt yourself. And it was a, it was a good time in that regard. I, I can tell you that the, the loneliest I ever felt, we, we broke rules just a little bit. Because if you ever take a look at military airplanes, they always fly in groups of two to four. Sometimes even more. But one day, actually it was late in the day because it was what we call the pinky launch. We were going to go out right at sunset, get, get, the, get the launch off the deck. And then you get, you get a night trap without having to take off in the, in the dark. Because take off in the dark off a carrier, that could be a handful. You know, the, the ugly thing about carrier launches is that sometimes the force of the catapult will break the airplane. It's not until you've been flying for about three or four seconds that you get a warm, comfortable feeling that the jet's okay. But immediately after the launch, you, you got to wait and see if everything's going to be working. And then we were going to go out and do search. And what we were searching for, anytime a carrier's out, we plot all the contacts around the boat just to keep our eye on them. And, uh, and I'll never forget this because... We lost, you know, the airplanes were going down on start. The F-14s that were supposed to take one sector, both of them went down, which meant that one sector wouldn't be covered. And my flight lead broke the flight up. And he, he said, you take our original 
and I'm going to go cover the F-14s sector. And so this was novel because, you know, we were out at sea flying alone 500 miles away from, from the ship. You know, I went north of the ship and it was amazing because I was 500 miles north of the ship and a thousand miles east of Hawaii and a thousand miles west of California. And there was nothing out there. I was, I was searching for contacts on the surface. There was nothing there. There were no ships, no, no fishing charters, no nothing out there. And uh, it was the most incredible feeling of loneliness, if you will, that I've ever experienced because it was, I mean, I was out there alone. I really had a, a pretty good feel for what Lindbergh must have been going through for a long time because as long as the engine was humming behind me, I didn't have a care. Uh, and it did, you know, the airplane worked fine throughout the flight, but it was so amazing to be 500 miles away from the ship and a thousand miles to the closest land. And then, you know, to come back and land on the boat at night, you know, that, that nighttime stuff is, is really something. It really is, you know, particularly when you trap at night. It's a, that's, that's great. Joe Clark is a professor at Embry-Riddle Daytona Beach. He teaches classes on commercial pilot operations and flight instructor techniques. He also helps students in the flight department get and maintain connections with internships in the aviation industry. Joe also runs a publishing company called Blue Water Press, and they publish Eagle Tales, which is the book that Dr. Cass Havel read out of last time on the logbook. Joe also has a pretty great blog, which you should look up at joeclarksblog.com. You can check out pictures of Joe and the planes he flew, along with more information about these stories and Blue Water Press by going to the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook. <laughs>